0: So let me ask you a question, David. Have you ever seen a ghost? Well, actually, years ago in
1: Florida, I saw what is probably categorizable as a ghost with a friend of mine. This is something we're going to talk about later in the year, but yeah, it was a, an entity that was completely there. So yeah, I have seen a ghost. Uh-oh. <laughs> but not recently. Well, not recently, no.
0: Mm. Well, tonight, we're going to talk to a ghostbuster. Joel Martin. That's right.
1: So the thing about Joel, Gene, is not only is he a ghostbuster, he's he's done a lot of research in the realm of the paranormal. And I first heard about Joel because of these books that he wrote about this medium by the name of George Anderson, one of the most tested mediums in the history of this realm. And uh, we should definitely ask Joel about his experiences with George and what he discovered about this guy. I mean, uh, fascinating story. He's also author of a book about ghosts in the presidents. Have you heard of oh, in the White House. Yeah, 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 yeah. The White House is supposedly one of the most haunted buildings in America.
2: Well,
0: I guess any old building could be subject to something or other. Sure. But you think about everything that's happened
1: in that place, the, the focus of all of the, the strange history of this country and how it's been really concentrated in that building. Um, it's not surprising to, to know that. Indeed, it's supposed to be one of the most haunted buildings in the country, in the world perhaps.
0: Hmm. Well, some people kind of think it may be <laughs> maybe there are certain people there who are haunting it that shouldn't be haunting it, if you get my point. It'd be
1: interesting to know if anybody who stayed in the Lincoln room had any weird stories about that place. I mean, you know, Lincoln was uh, such an enigmatic character, and apparently, I think he is one of the ghosts that's seen in the White House. They're getting advice and counsel. Well, they could certainly use it at this point in the the current administration. They could use some kind of rational, coherent advice.
0: Sounds to me like we're getting into politics
1: again, my friend. It seems like we always veer in that direction, Gene. I don't know. Maybe it's got something to do with the supercharged atmosphere politically that we live in in this country.
0: Well, I can't disagree. Well, let's see what Joel Martin has to tell us about the spirits of the White Yeah, let's keep it on ghosts tonight. Okay. (laughs) Okay, I hope we can do that. We'll try. I
2: have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
0: Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at one 800 728 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the paracast of Gene Steinberg and David Bandy.
2: You never know what's going to happen next.
1: Joel, you've written extensively on the topic of hauntings. What we'd like to know to begin this conversation is what episodes of hauntings do you feel are particularly compelling in which more than a few people have actually seen an apparition?
3: Well, haunting has such a... uh i guess a stereotype definition you know it's it's such a loaded word it's uh unfortunate but when you say ghost or haunting it it makes people laugh but the truth is there is there is genuinely a phenomenon that is going on and uh probably the incident in my life the case that i observed personally that uh, was the most profound for me was a house on Long Island, east of New York City, in which a man and his wife lived, but the house had been built in the 1700s and was the scene of a good deal of activity when uh, the Revolutionary War was going on. Now, there have been innumerable witnesses to things flying around in that house, to disturbances from noises, from voices, from apparitions, objects moving, and uh, it's not just me who's seen it, it's, it's many, many people. And finally, when I learned about the house, to make a long story short, we brought in a medium on one occasion. And she actually had the sensation that uh, somebody had been hung there during the colonial American era. I brought in a second medium sometime later, and he did not know about the first medium's work. And he, too, suggested that something went on there that was violent, a death that had to do with a man who lived there later, who caught his wife. Having an affair with a uh, caretaker or one of the uh, the farm hands, and uh, make a long story short, his daughter this man 's daughter, and the ghost of uh, several of the people appear. They actually move things around. I saw the things move, and i wasn 't the only one. We heard the banging from places there could be nobody banging. We made audio tape, and on the audio tape, you heard noises and sounds that were not audible to the uh, ear regularly. And as well, um, they and several of their friends have seen a number of visions. So, yes, there is genuinely, absolutely a phenomenon. Unfortunately, it's easy to say it and fake it, you know, and make it up. But in some cases, yeah, it, it's, it's genuine.
0: You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to... Author, paranormal expert, Joel Martin, who has worked as a talk show host, is a winner of a Cable Ace Award. I want to talk about that maybe a little bit later. And he's also author, among other things, of The Haunting of the Presidents, A Paranormal History of the U.S. Presidency, which he co-authored with our old friend William Burns. David, you wanted to continue on that question?
1: Yeah, I'd actually love to know about the type of energy that surrounds these sorts of episodes, Joel. Um, You mentioned that in this particular house. These mediums sense that there had been a violent episode, maybe a murder. Is that something that's typical of these kinds of situations? Does it require that kind of emotion to create an imprint, a psychic imprint,
3: on a structure? Yes, it, it requires emotion. A sudden or tragic death, particularly often something uh, a situation where a young person has been killed or died suddenly and uh, at a young age. Uh, murders are unfortunately particularly onerous and uh, a sign of of a ghost or an apparition returning um, There is always some very emotional situation associated in my experience with the ghost or apparitional phenomena that returns to a house
1: it's almost like the spirit can't get any kind of peace there's no resolution
3: exactly it's as if that right exactly it's as if something has been left undone that they have to complete they're so stunned by passing on that they are really holding to the place that they were in or comfortable with when they were on earth. Now the word haunting, as I said before, is somewhat of a loaded word, and it's, you know, it brings giggles and guffaws and stereotypes and stigmas, but the truth is all it really means is that a spirit, whatever survives our physical death, is going back to some place it knew well, or some place where it left something undone. Probably in American history, the most famous ghost, uh, certainly it's a benign ghost, it's not going to hurt anybody, but it died tragically, certainly, was President Abraham Lincoln. Now, there have been so many witnesses to Lincoln's ghost, so many credible and famous people who've seen it in the White House, that it boggles the imagination. It just absolutely is mind-blowing to me that... You have debunkers and skeptics who say, "No, no, no, they're all wrong." Dwight Eisenhower might have led us through D-Day in World War II, but uh, when he saw Lincoln's ghost, he was crazy. Oh, come on, you know, man, you know, Eisenhower Lincoln's ghost. Winston Churchill, you know, we're talking about people who are really important people in this world.
2: Whoa, whoa,
1: whoa! <laughs> oh, Eisenhower saw Lincoln's ghost in the White House. Eisenhower, absolutely. Yeah. Where is this document? I'm sure, Dwight Eisenhower, who was a great general during
3: World War II. For people who don't know or don't recall, it, it's before our time, but you know, it, it's, a, it's a very important part of history, obviously. And led the D-Day invasion that that finally ended the ended the uh, the, the Nazi dread. He became president. He was elected in 1952, so he lived in the White House from '53 until the very beginning of 61 when John F. Kennedy was president. So we've set the time frame. General Eisenhower, or President Eisenhower then, was not a man who was given to believing in this, frankly, about his only hobby really was golf. They lived in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. But one day he's walking in the residential quarters, you know, the part that the public doesn't see, and as he's going down the hall, he uh, bumps into Lincoln's ghost. And he says... It to his press secretary, he tells his press secretary, who then later repeated it on a TV program that is still on the air called Meet the Press. Really? And they made no, they made no bones about it. They made no fuss. He said, "No, I saw his ghost. I saw the apparition of Abraham Lincoln." And he's. And somebody said, "Did it scare you?" He said, no, he said, I've just been, I've been for World War II and D-Day. <laughs> I
0: don't think a ghost is going to scare me. Right, just a ghost, if you see Abraham Lincoln. Now, was this a visual sighting strictly, or did Abraham Lincoln, and I'm being serious about this strictly right now, did he actually talk to anybody, say anything, or was it strictly just all visual? No,
3: this was visual in this case it was visual and he was just walking down a hall among the people who reported lincoln's ghost in the white house to give you an example because you were asking about witnesses and uh, rather than talking about only a case that i was involved in where it was a, a private home here's the most public building in america one certainly one of the most important and we're talking about people who have seen or witnessed that apparition, that shadowy form and sometimes even uh, a bit of him materializing in terms of his face. Uh, I can't remember every one because there were too many, but we'll, we'll go through a couple of them. President Dwight Eisenhower, there's a story in Harry Truman's diaries about hearing a knock on the door and having the sensation it was Lincoln's ghost. He believed it was. Winston Churchill had a very eerie experience too that he thought was related to uh, President Lincoln, when he was staying at the White House during the war years, the British Prime Minister, Queen Wilhelmina, when she was in exile during World War II, heard a knock on her door when she was a guest in the White House way back in the 1940s, opened the door because she kept saying, who's there, and no voice answered, to answer your question, no voice, uh, opens the door, and who's standing there? Clearly, Abraham Lincoln. She, who had also stood up to the Nazis, fainted promptly. Carl Sandburg, Lincoln's biographer who wrote the most famous books about him ever. He saw his spirit there. Mrs. Uh, Lyndon Johnson did, Lady Bird Johnson. Mrs. Kennedy, Maureen Reagan, the late daughter of President uh, and Nancy Reagan. All of them reported the apparition of Lincoln. That's just some of the people. I I don't want to, you know go droning on constantly but it's that profound now that's an awful lot of witnesses to report the same thing and it's not imagination there was an aide who even reported seeing the apparition of the lincoln ghost up during the clinton administration it made the news for about one you know middle blip. i mean one brief report and then they, they squashed the story they were afraid that somehow it'll bring some kind of ridicule on their administration uh, with bill clinton that's hysterical i mean he he did enough he didn't need lincoln's ghost
2: <laughs> <laughs> you've entered another dimension, another dimension. you've entered you another dimension <laughs>
0: You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're spending the show with Joel Martin. He's a paranormal expert and a best-selling author, and we're talking now about stuff that no doubt is in the book, The Haunting of the Presidents, A Paranormal History of the U.S. Presidency, which he co-authored with our friend William Burns. And I want to ask you two things before we progress about this. This is kind of a segue into a different, slightly different subject, but we'll get back to presidents in a moment. Now... There have been theories here that the reason some people think they see ghosts or see ghosts, whatever your perception is, is because of some kind of wayward electromagnetic energy. I guess that's kind of a way that scientists are trying to put a reason afoot for this phenomenon. What do you say to them? So what is your opinion?
3: Well, my opinion is is to agree with what you're saying. It appears to be something of an electromagnetic nature. Some of the evidence that I think... Supports that theory, and it is only a theory, is that one of the manifestations of ghostly phenomena that we, still alive on Earth, witness or experience are disturbances to electric lights, telephones, garage doors that open and close, uh, lights and appliances that blink on and off. So it, it's as if somehow it is interfering with um, electrical equipment. And the theory that it is of an electromagnetic nature, while a theory, does make a good deal of sense. Clearly, it's some form of of an unseen energy, something that we simply do not know how to measure and often cannot see unless it materializes for a moment. But the electromagnetic theory is a commonly held one. And quite reasonable.
0: Okay, but do we say then that the electromagnetic radiation is caused by dead people, or are people seeing things they expect to see?
3: Well, I can answer that last part first. They are not seeing things in every case that they expect to see, not by any means. And as far as what they see, paranormal phenomena, especially when you're talking about apparitions, spirits, ghosts, there are many words for basically the, the, the same phenomenon. They work on their own schedule. In other words, we cannot summon them up in some laboratory somewhere and say, "Okay, appear now and hop into my test tube," or "I <laughs> want right in front of the the the." the, uh, the uh, scan machine or you know whatever other medical device or technology I have they work on their own schedule so I don't think people expect to see them now it's possible in the White House that if you are in the presidential or private quarters knowing about these stories might you anticipate that you'll see Lincoln's ghost sure but in too many cases they happen abruptly and suddenly and in such a way that you don't even in a million years, dream or think that it's going to happen. That was what happened with me. The one experience I had in 30-plus years of researching and writing and broadcasting about this subject happened to me when I least expected it and in a place I never would have expected it. And um, it was in a church in in Bonn, Germany, and uh, I saw the apparition of a nun. Now, anybody who tells me I didn't doesn't want to meet me in person (laughs) because I don't like being called a liar. Clearly, it can happen any time. Yes, you can have expectations, you can have anticipation, but they don't work on that schedule necessarily. But there is another question inherent in what you just asked. Are these manifestations of somebody who's passed on, or are they somehow projections of our own subconscious or something (laughs) that we are producing? either through some psychokinetic activity or some subconscious activity. Now, that's a, a, you know, a good question implicit in what you're asking that is obviously open to you know great debate.
0: Well, it's certainly a subject we're going to have to explore more and more. I just want to throw something out. I'm sure David's champing it a bit with his own questions, but I wanted to throw something out here. Some people maintain that some of the so-called UFOs that we see may be generated by the same source.
3: Yes. Yes, that is also a theory, um, a theory that has been uh, promulgated that uh, they are perhaps uh, apparitional in nature, that they are interdimensional in nature, and uh, yeah, there's not much more to comment on than to suggest that absolutely, and how do we know that they are or aren't? Frankly, we really don't. The only thing we can assume is that if a number of people see it, if photographs are taken... If there are witnesses and there is some objective evidence, then it's probably not apparitional in nature. It's a genuine object. So that applies to ghost sightings in general. What do you do, for example, when you have photographic or videoed or filmed evidence of an apparition or a ghost? Is it then just a projection of the person who's seeing it? That seems unlikely. On the other hand, yeah, it's possible that... Um, some of the physical objects that we think we see in the sky are not what we, we see, but are something that are either other-dimensional or apparitional.
1: Joel, you mentioned objective evidence of ghosts. Have you ever seen photographs or video that you felt convinced were not faked in any way, that were, that were perhaps genuine?
3: Oh, absolutely. I have, one of, I have a copy in my office I have several copies, so I don't lose the uh, copy, uh, of one of the most genuine ghost photographs ever taken. I've seen two that are absolutely, categorically, without question, genuine. And I can tell you the stories briefly, if you wish. Sure, One is the story of a woman who lived to be in her 90s in a house in New York City that is now a museum called the Merchant House. The Merchant House Museum is in lower Manhattan, almost on the border of where uh, Greenwich Village would be. Around that neighborhood uh, for people who are from New York. But this woman lived in that house, a beautiful old house, still with the furnishings of uh, the early and mid 1800s. She actually was born in the uh, early 1800s and lived to the early 1900s. She lived to be almost a 100. But when she was a young woman, she was very much in love with a young man, and her father, who was very severe, And uh, way too strict, obviously, but in that year, that's the way life was, broke up the relationship. And once he broke up that relationship, she was devastated and probably suffered the equivalent of what we might call a nervous breakdown. There's your emotional trauma. She retired to her room, and her first name was Gertrude, and she never came out of that room, basically. And in doing so, um, when she died, she must have left a lot of emotion in that house, because All of the witnesses who have reported some sense or seeing or feeling of her report seeing a cloud or a mist. Now, a friend of mine who's a writer, a network TV writer, was moving from New York to Hollywood for a new assignment and loved that house. Knew nothing about the haunted nature of it or anything to do with a ghost. She just loved the old furnishings. So to make a long story short, she went and visited it uh, some years ago, several years ago, maybe a decade ago. And she just there was snapping pictures of there just because she wanted to remember places in New York that she liked before she uh, relocated to Los Angeles. So again, make a long story short, she clips off a roll of film. She just goes, click, 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 click. She develops the film, and to her surprise, in one frame... In the room where Gertrude lived, near the four-poster bed in a fireplace, you see a long white line. Try to imagine that tread you see from the airplanes that make that skywriting, but it's not horizontal. It's vertical, up and down. She doesn't know what it is. She assumed it was something on the lens, perhaps, or maybe it was just some error in the photography. Then she's assigned to some show where she is uh, dealing with researching ghosts and hauntings. And sure enough, there's a story about the merchant house. So she did a double take. And as she's reading the story, it says that countless people have reported seeing that, and some have even taken pictures of that room, only to find that same up-and-down vertical smoke or energy, if you will, that kind of uh, white uh, form that goes up and down. And uh, she realized she saw the same thing, and there she has it on on, on a snapshot. So she gave me a copy of it, and I had it blown up, and um, it's been shown on network TV a number of times, and that is absolutely, positively genuine. The other genuine ghost photo I saw was taken by somebody who was highly skeptical of the subject, who visited the Edgar Allan Poe House. Now, there are a lot of Edgar Allan Poe Houses. He was poor, even though he was brilliant and troubled, as you know, and in his lifetime, which is about the early 1800s to, I guess, the mid-1800s. He moved around because when you couldn't afford the rent, you kind of skipped town and went to another house. So you've got Edgar Allan Poe houses in the Bronx, in New York City, in Westchester, above New York. You've got them in Baltimore. They're all over the place. They went to one that was in New York City. And you're not supposed to take pictures there, but he had a little instamatic camera, and he just wanted pictures of the house. So when nobody was looking, he just went stop, stop, stop. You know, again, click, click, click with this little instamatic. When he came back home, once they got the film developed, what he saw in one one snapshot just absolutely floored him. And I have seen it. You see a shadow, a shape of a woman sitting in a chair, a rocking chair, near a fireplace. When you do the research, you find out that Edgar Allan Poe's young wife, who was suffering from consumption and dying, always sat in that chair near the fireplace for warmth at a time when, obviously, home heating wasn't, you know, maybe a bit less expensive, but it wasn't very good. Clearly, it was an apparitional form, and nobody faked it. Nobody did anything to it. It, He couldn't have if he wanted to, and he doesn't believe in it anyway. He was stunned. Now, was the emotion that she generated by sitting at that fireplace and dying young enough to manifest or generate an apparition? Obviously, in that case, yes. So those are absolutely two photographs that I've seen that I will swear on my my grave on anything you want (laughs) are genuine, without a question. The bunkers have convinced us that every time somebody takes a picture of this, there's something wrong with the lens, or it's the light, or it's your imagination, or you've lied, or you've done some kind of trick photography. No, that's not true.
2: You've entered another dimension. dimension. You've entered the dimension.
4: about to enter another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind, a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened. At the signpost up ahead, your next stop, conspiracies and secret societies, the complete dossier. This
0: is true. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Joel Martin, paranormal expert among his books, and this one co-authored with William Burns, The Haunting of the Presidents, A Paranormal History of the U.S. Presidency. I have one question here we've covered a lot of cases so far, and we're going to cover a lot more before the evening is over. Situations that you feel are genuine. If I understand this correctly, you're not a fan of the Amityville story. You don't believe in it. Is that correct?
3: Well, the Amityville story has stuck to me like chewing gum on the bottom of your shoe. I'm sorry to say. I don't mean to be crude. But I was there that terrible night when six people were murdered in that house. I reported that story all throughout the period when the people who moved in after the murdered family lived there and reported that they were plagued with all kinds of demonic forces, evil spirits, etc. And then, five years later in 1979, I had the only broadcast interview in the nation with the attorney for the young man who killed his entire family, Ronald LeFeo Jr., and the attorney, whose name is William Weber was part of concocting the hoax. First, they talked about it in the hopes of getting an insanity defense or a new trial for Ronnie on the basis of perhaps being demonically possessed, but then that idea was dropped. And he and Lutz, George Lutz, the man who lived there after the murdered family, went their separate ways. Lutz went on to write a best-selling book and a hit motion picture and made a really lot of money. You know, as far as the grocers were concerned, Weber, was cut out of that and obviously thought he was entitled to a share to make his side of the story known he needed to give or present it someplace uh, where questions could be asked and he could lay down the testimony to lay down the truth uh, on a program fortunately mine was suggested and he spent a couple of hours with me talking about how the hoax was created as far as the book and the film are concerned so I'm not a fan of the story they made up. I have covered a huge amount about the material. The late parapsychologist Stephen Kaplan was responsible for chasing it down for 20 years. But unfortunately, while what they made up was almost certainly a hoax, there are some strange events that circulated around that house where six people from one family were murdered by the sole surviving son in November of 1974. I mean, I had some terrible tragedies and synchronicities around my reporting of the story and other people did also so who knows if there were some evil or demonic forces unleashed but clearly the story as it was told in the book and film the avid horror and its idiotic sequels
0: were fiction all right you just raised a few more questions here these ancillary events can you be specific about some of them Yes, we understand the core event that is part of the movie, the book, and everything okay. you consider fraudulent, but what about the other stuff?
3: Okay, here's an example. I was working at the time, this is in November 1974, I I, I was a very young reporter. I started working on Long Island Radio as a teenager, and I, I took pretty much, you know, what I did for almost forever it seems. But I was also a stringer, in other words, a a freelance reporter for United Press International, the uh, national newswire service. And when stories would happen on Long Island, which has several million people, you know, east of New York City, in the suburbs, I would cover the story. One night, when my day was finished at the radio station where I was news director and uh, talk show host about exactly what you do with Paracast, the same Mm -hmm. subjects, back then, I uh, see the phone lighting up, meaning it was ringing. I pick up the phone the UPI, and they say, get over to the uh, 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville. There's been a mass murder. Right? We think six people have been killed. And I, in those years before satellite and other sophisticated technologies, you know, a lot more was done by foot than by travel. Well, we got there probably before anybody else in the media. So early that I was able to see things I didn't want to see, including one of the dead children and... Um, we were able to ask many questions and ascertain a great deal of information. It was a gruesome night, to put it politely. You have six bodies coming out, one of which uh, is a child who I was able to be close enough to a dead child to see a a entrance and exit wound, you know, a wound in the head. And uh, these six people had all been shot by the sole surviving son, as I said. Well, the night was horrible. And we finally got home, maybe 1.30 in the morning, and after that kind of grisly bloodbath that we had covered as a news story, where I actually was able to pin down from neighbors who heard of dog barking the time of death which of the people which appears in the film and is credited to the medical examiner three fifteen in the morning they they in the movie he jumps up every morning at three fifteen if you 've seen the film it was actually my report because the dogs where the dogs bark between three and three thirty about three fifteen I come home and just to you know. Like unwind, I guess you could say. I pick up my kitten, a little fluff ball that we had just bought, a gorgeous little cat, a little uh, kitten. And the little black and white kitten I'm holding in my hands and I pet it. As I pet it several times, it looks at me while I'm holding it, it gives a croak like like that, and died right in my hand.
2: Oh, oh my God.
3: Yeah, the honest, sweat of God, true story. Now, I'm going to jump ahead uh, five years to another incident where I'm concerned, and then I'll tell you about some of the other tragedies. In August, specifically August 2nd of 1979, for time convenience, I taped that exclusive interview with the attorney, William Weber, about the Amityville horror hoax. It was just a convenient time for him. And you know the euphemism live on tape. What you hear is what you get. There's no editing. There's no chopping. There's no nothing. You tape it. You put it in the box, you give it to the engineer, and they run the tape. So it sounds live. It's essentially a live program. It's just pre-recorded, like The Tonight Show is or, you know, Letterman or whoever, you know. And so we uh, are there that evening, and I'm waiting. It's a Thursday, and Bill Weber is due to give me this national exclusive, which is no small thing, obviously. And it's about 8 o'clock, and then it's a couple of minutes after 8, My phone is lighting again in in the office. Obviously, they don't ring in studios, as you guys know, because it's going to make noise on the air. So I see the little light going on. But this is on my private line. Who the heck would be calling me now? There's only about five people who have it. And I pick it up, and it's my daughter, my very young daughter. Daddy? Yes? Mommy's dead. Mommy's been killed. Just like that. Oh. Five minutes later, Bill Weber walks in. I'd never met him before. He said, and I was shaking. And he said, oh, my God. He said, I don't mean to be funny, but you look white as a ghost. and You're shaking like a trembling like a leaf. What happened? And I told him that my little girl had just called me and said her mother was killed. I was absolutely stunned. Somehow I sat down. He said, I'll come back. I'll come back. I said, no. I was in shock. I did the program. And just that night, just before I reveal that whole thing to be a hoax, what happens? She's killed. Now, the prosecutor in the case, he died, young and tragically, of a heart attack. Jay Anson, who wrote the book, who had some heart problems, he died of a heart attack. One of the magazine writers, uh, one of the first magazine writers to do anything with the story, he died of a heart attack. Kathy Lutz, the wife of the, the, the man who lived in the next family, the family who said they were plagued with all kinds of nonsense for a month, uh, occult and evil and demonic spirits, she died recently After suffering for years, she was young in her 50s. Um, Steve Kaplan, who worked on Exposing the Hoax, wrote a book about it. Worked on it for 20 years. The book finally is ready. He died of a heart attack two weeks before the book came out. When I wrote a chapter about the book for Future Project, if I told you the problems I had on that computer, you would not believe me. Everything else has worked fine, except on that chapter. I have had a living hell trying to just get that chapter done, and I've had to call computer people to to uh, booting the computer. It keeps turning itself off. Now, is it coincidence? Sure, it could all be coincidence. Synchronicity, as Carl Jung said, sure. Is it my imagination? No. And those are only some of the deaths. There were more tragedies than even that. But those are, those are some of the highlights of what went on. Now, could, even though Stephen Kaplan said, and Bill Weber said it was a hoax, clearly, that they created, could there be some demonic or evil forces that were summoned up in that house from the very angry, volatile young man who fought with his father and then killed the whole family? Could those who faked the story and created the demons have actually stirred something up that they should not have, like some kind of rat's nest? You have any number of theories. I am not willing to close my mind to any of them because I've seen too many strange things. And one thing I will say to my, my pals who won't debate me, the debunkers, I am not lying. I don't do that about the subject this subject does not need embellishment. It's weird enough, <laughs> and it does <it's> strange <laughs> enough things without me having to fake anything. I'm not Stephen King. I don't have that kind of imagination.
0: We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine?
3: Yes, I sure
5: can. And here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five issue introductory offer for first time subscribers. 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast.
0: So Bill, how do they place the order?
5: People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295.
0: Bill, give us that contact information again.
5: It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call one eight 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 UFO M A G A, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card.
2: You've entered another dimension. Another dimension. You've entered the you podcast.
0: You're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, And we're talking to Joel Martin. He's a paranormal expert. Among his books, The Haunting of the Presidents, A Paranormal History of the U.S. Presidency. David, I know you have so many questions. I could see it now. Uh,
1: Absolutely. So, so Joel, you're, you're mentioning here this notion of these negative energies, these evil energies that can potentially manifest around these types of incidents. So what you're really saying here is that as far as hauntings go, we have what are potentially the spirits of humans that have lived in, let's say, a space and have departed. But then also, let's talk a little bit about hauntings that are maybe not sourced in the same way. Are, are there episodes where it appears that the spirits are coming from some other place, that they're not human, that there's some sort of a dark force? That's a very
3: good question, and uh, there have been any number of mediums and uh, demonologists and exorcists who claim exactly that. Now that, again, becomes a matter of opinion. Why do they manifest? We said they return to where they knew and what they knew. Could there be dark spirits or negative spirits? Sure, if you believe that there's positive, there's negative. You know, yin and yang, positive and negative, uh, hot and cold, uh, dark and light. Uh, it's, it's entirely possible. There's a very good book by Larry Dossie called uh, Be Careful What You Pray For. And what it basically is saying is an answer to your question. If we pray for things to come true that are good, why isn't it possible that we also might pray for things that are bad? And in so doing, do we summon up or stir up if we believe that there is a spirit world, assuming that? something that is dark and negative. New Orleans is a good example of a city that's haunted with God only knows how many stories of evil spirits and demonic possession, the practice of voodoo, the terrible tragedy, uh, the obscenity of uh, of its history of slavery. Uh, A lot of dark and emotional negativity in life might produce the same thing in the afterlife, assuming you believe in the afterlife. So, sure, it could be coming from somewhere else. You know, the, 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 uh, the poetic media will say, well, it's inhuman. It's coming from the bowels of the earth. Well, whether it's coming from the bowels of the earth as a metaphor, or we're talking about an evil spirit that's uh, an angry soul that wants its revenge and uh, is uh, somehow not content to go to the afterlife, Sure, then you've got yourself an evil spirit. We pray for good, we can pray for bad. We, we can actually create that kind of negativity. I don't know if, uh, if you gentlemen remember something called the Thorpe Experiment years ago. In the, uh, about 1973, the Toronto Society for Psychical Research, a very very legitimate and genuine organization, had the same question you just asked. Could you create these things? I mean, can you, can you make them up? Could you create them? And they sat around a table, and by the power of their mind, using psychokinetic power, basically, or ability, they actually created a ghost, an entity, who never really existed. They summoned up, by manufacturing, a ghost they named Philip. Now, he was benign. He was not dangerous or in any way anything that could hurt you, but he was able to move the table. He was able to make knocking and rapping sounds. And so if you can do that, And he's a good ghost, if you will, or a a good manifestation of their own mind's energy. Why couldn't you do that with something evil? Sure.
1: But but what you're describing, Joel, is a psychic projection is actually being generated by power of the mind.
3: Right. And that is one theory that cannot be ruled out. But could there be a dimension or a place where spirits that are... Dark or evil or at some lower level manifest that evil, Uh, as you ask specifically? Yes, of course. And while it's a very small number of them, most ghosts of spirits seem absolutely unaware of us around them when you see a haunted house. But there are some that are definitely evil, are definitely negative, and can do harm and have done harm. That's the whole concept of possession. What, what is possession, if, not, if it's genuine, not somebody who is a rogue, it's, it's an evil spirit, basically, taking over your body and
0: mind. Now we're raising some more issues here, and I want to ask about these things. So, number one, as far as the ghosts are concerned, now, and this is obviously, unless you talk to a ghost, you're not going to know, but this is certainly something we can do some supposition about. I would assume they see their surroundings, at least the house or the surroundings they're in, Right.
3: Yeah, I I would believe from all of the evidence and from all of the witnesses and uh, even from what I've seen in my one personal experience, yes, I do think so. I think you have to make a differentiation that some simply are visiting and then return to the other side, and the ones that persist that seem to stay here that are earthbound don't even move more than a few inches and they do a repetitive act I mean, it could go on for years, and even if they're aware of their surroundings, they just confine themselves to one area. They don't go flitting around or flying around like Casper the Friendly Ghost, not like that at all. Yes, they're aware.
0: Are they aware of us? Can they see us? Can they see human beings?
3: It appears that they can see us. Uh, in my own experience, that apparition of the nun clearly did see me because she uh, actually walked over to where I was and and. Uh, did something very comforting, something of a religious nature, very comforting, and they are aware of us, but in most cases, it appears that they're here on their own business. It's as if, and sometimes when they get angry, it's as if they know we're here, obviously, and we're intruding. Don't forget, this was their house before it was yours. <laughs> and so, they sometimes get angry and things fly around, as in poltergeist cases and angry ghost cases. Uh, from whatever dimension they're coming from to uh, let you know that it's still their place and sometimes they want you to get out and other times they simply ignore you and you just have to coexist with them um, I mean there are all almost every answer fits but they obviously are aware of us and in some cases they simply don't care that we're there and other cases they'd like us to get the heck out
2: You're in the with Steinberg and David the You never know what's going to happen next.
0: You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Joel Martin. He is author of some books that include The Haunting of the Presidents, A Paranormal History of the U.S. Presidency. Before we continue, Joel, you have any other books coming out or other books you'd like to mention here?
3: One of the books that I wrote, the original, the first book that I wrote that really became a worldwide phenomena in terms of life after death and has been a bestseller for years is a book called We Don't Die. And it was based on many, many years of work I did with a particular psychic medium who was so gifted and so genuine and so tested that it was a story I knew had to be shared beyond the bounds of uh, New York City's metropolitan area and Long Island. And so I wrote about his life and his work and literally, I'm not exaggerating, I wrote three books ultimately about him. I co-authored them. The uh, number of actual readings I watched this particular medium perform, the publisher added them up to at least 11,000. There were probably more because I didn't include the broadcast ones. I kept notes on over 11,000 readings, and that was only that medium. I've done it with many others as well. And We Don't Die, which came out in 1988, continues to be uh, not only sort of classic, I guess, immodestly in its field. But it was the first book that then generated interest in the field in modern mediumship, and it was followed by John Edwards and uh, Von Prague and just a, a scores of people and the TV shows uh, and other books that uh, dealt with the afterlife. And the evidence was so overwhelming and so astounding, and you could call it objective because you could see the results on various types of medical technology, and I had doctors and scientists all over the place working on it, you would have to call that objective. Absolutely. And that is the book that uh, I'm very proud of. And then Haunting of the Presidents is very important because it really does suggest that uh, everybody, whether you are a a pauper, uh, a street person, the president, it doesn't matter. The postman, we all share these experiences and these experiences are not exclusive to any one group and the best educated the most responsible have them and another book that I wrote which I think is important for people to know about not because I I want necessarily them to buy the book bar from a library or just know the subject is a book that I co-authored called Love Beyond Life and that is a book that talks about how when a loved one dies they could return to us and let us know that they are okay. And many, many people, in, we're talking in the millions, okay? We're talking 80 to 100 million Americans reporting everything from near-death experiences to seeing their spouse or child or parent who's just passed on to something moving to a particular scent, to a voice being heard. So the loved one is communicating directly to you You don't have to go to a psychic or a medium. You can uh, access uh, them pretty much on your own through prayer, meditation, and often they'll come back to you through dreams. That's probably the most common way. And so I've tried to explore every aspect of the possibility that there is life after death, that there is an afterlife, that something goes on beyond, that we don't die.
1: The book We Don't Die documents your experiences with medium George Anderson. And it was because of reading your books years ago, seeing TV appearances with him, and then actually also seeing him live. Could you tell us about your history with George Anderson? This is something I would would love our audience to know about. How did you find this guy?
3: It's an interesting story, and it almost, again... We've been put into this mindset that we must swear on, 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 you know, mama's grave and uh, swear to God and tell each other we're not lying. I'm really telling you the truth. But the honest to God truth is one night I had a psychic on my show in the late 1970s by the name of Robert Petro and he was a brilliant clairvoyant and he still is a brilliant clairvoyant and a young lady called in and uh, she was losing her sight. She was a teenager. I don't know. Anything about her, and I, I just was captivated by the voice and, and the uh, emotion of her story. Uh, Pietro said he would be appearing someplace publicly the next weekend. Rarely, after doing a whole week of talk shows, three hours a night, plus news during the day, and God only knows what, did I want to go out to public appearances on the weekend. Something compelled me to go. I walk into this auditorium where he's appearing, and nobody would have recognized me because I, at that point I was not on TV every night. Not the way I was from 1980 until literally the present. I walk in, and a man comes over to me with a long beard and long hair wearing kind of a loose-fitting top. Uh, They call an African like a dashiki. Uh, Just like a a very loose-fitting smock almost, and grabs me by the hand. Now, I'm not very tall. I'm 5'6". He had to be a good 6'4". He was large. Not the kind of guy I'm going to fight with anyway, but he had the sweetest eyes, the nicest-looking man in terms of, of gentleness. And he says, you're Joel Martin. I don't know how he knew, because I had just walked in. I can't even imagine how anybody introduced us or pointed me out to him. Make a long story short. He says, I know why you're here. You're here to meet the blind girl. I said, you're right, but how did you? He said, I just know you're here to meet the blind girl. He takes me again by the hand. He could have lifted me up over his head, actually, but he, didn't. he just gently took me by the hand. He took me over to where there were a crowd of people standing in this large gymnasium auditorium-type place and says, this is her. I have to go now. I said, but, but who are you? I, I don't know who you are. Uh, uh, my name is Dennis. I, I do long haul truck driving. I listen to you. I said, will I ever talk to you again? If you need to, but I'll be in touch with you. Don't worry about it. I never heard from him again. This is now from the late 1970s all right The blind girl I meet she comes to work for me, even though she 's lost her sight from juvenile diabetes and uh, diabetic retinopathy. she's a teenager, a beautiful young lady with blonde hair and blue eyes, and uh, very, very bright love this subject. Make a long story short. one day she comes running into the studio in nineteen eighty and she says i i 'll clean up the language. Expletives was deleted. there were quite a few of them she said. Blank. I just met a man who can blank talk to the dead. Blank, blank, blank. I said, what, "What?" But Patty, hold on, slow up. What are you talking about? She said, "There's a guy in the neighborhood. My God, he knew things about me that nobody could know. He knew things that I didn't even know yet about my family." And she's going on and on and on. And I said, "Well, what do you want me to do?" She said, "Have him on your show. You've got to meet him." I said, "I don't believe in that. I really don't. Yeah, I'm not even interested. You know what I was interested in, guys? I was interested in getting ratings. I wasn't going to lie." People love the show and the subject, and I had double-digit ratings. I didn't care about anything else. She said, you've got to meet him. You've got to meet him. Well, it changed my life. I did meet him, and his name was George Anderson. He was in his 20s. He lived in the neighborhood. And sure enough, he did readings and communicated with people as a medium and then spirits at a level that I was absolutely stunned by. He knew because my late wife had, as I told you, been killed in 1979. He knew details about the accident that I did not know. Well, that would kind of rule out mental telepathy. He knew details and names of relatives in the family, events that I wasn't aware of involving my sister and uncle who was ill, and aunt who had been killed, and it went on and on and on. And messages from my grandfather so specific that I really started to shake. Then he says, oh, there's a pretty girl standing behind you with blonde hair. And like an idiot, I turn around and look. Obviously, he saw the spirit. I didn't. He described exactly what she looked like. And what really unnerved me was when he said, this is when we met the first time just privately. He didn't know me except by reputation on the air. And I kept my private life very private. You couldn't trace me if you wanted to. There have been so many name changes in my family. It's ridiculous. He says she's wagging her finger like you would scold a child. And I remember going, oh, my God. And I jumped up. and I said, stop. Up, because I was getting very upset. What that meant was that when we were married, she regarded me as something equivalent to about maybe two or three years old mentally, and she'd always <laughs> wag a finger at me because I'd leave things around the house, and she'd you'll never grow up, you'll never hang up a towel, you'll never put away your shoes, blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and... How would he know that, and how would he know details of the accident? I was so stunned that the only thing I could do now was figure this was the most amazing trick I had ever seen, or there was something genuine going on. So I asked him to come back, and I tested him. And how I tested him was to sit him down and not decide who I was going to call when we take these private sessions, except at that moment when I called somebody only I knew but didn't know anything about. So, for example, I called a friend. I one day called the radio station's chief engineer. I called my parents. But nobody knew who I was going to call until I actually hit the phone. That way, he could not have had... Any kind of visual clues, verbal clues, research, all that other, you know, junk that the debunkers tell you they have. Oh, they prepare and research. No, he could not have. And all the person on the phone was allowed to do was answer yes or no. That's how strict it was. The results were stunning. They were so stunning that I got into several fights because people said that he revealed things that were too private that I must have told him. And I remember having a fight with one fella who said, I never told anybody that I was adopted. I never told anybody my real father ran away. You told him. I said, You just said nobody, you never told anybody, you moron, idiot. I'm, what are you telling <laughs> me I told him, I didn't know. I said, Oh my God, you're right. I brought in a magician, a very good friend of mine, Max Toath, who was a brilliant parapsychologist and a magician. And my instructions to Max were this is again, in 1980, very early before I met George, can you debunk him? It's got to be a trick. Please tell me how he's doing it. I don't care. I get the same paycheck whether I debunk it or I support it, okay? I'll, my ratings is going to be good no matter what. I'm not worried about that. Well, Max tested him privately only as a magician could. And I said, Max, this is not to prove he's real. This is to debunk it. He comes back to me a, over an hour later, and he looks at me, puts his head out, shakes my hand. I said, congratulations. I said, on what? He said, Fine. with a big smile, he says, You found the real thing, and I was stunned. It changed my whole life, because where my whole life had been broadcasting, now all of a sudden I was becoming interested in this subject at a whole other level, in a whole different way. Well, we tested them with thermography, with PET scans, with uh, 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 EEGs, EKGs, with computer analysis. With probability tests, it goes on and on. so many tests I can't even describe them to you. From doctors and scientists and skeptics and everybody who I knew who was a professional, who I could call in a favor from, psychologists, clergy, magicians, you name it. Nobody could in any way debunk what he was doing at that time.
5: This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for conspiracyjournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown? Things that go bump in the night? UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at webtv.net. It's all out of this
2: world. Another dimension. Another dimension. You've entered. You've, You've entered. Paracast.
0: You're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Joel Martin, paranormal expert among his books, Haunting of the Presidents, a Paranormal History of the U.S. Presidency. He is a talk show host, winner of the Cable Ace Award. I'm going to ask him about that for a moment. All right. You were telling us before I interrupted you rather rudely there. Um, just want to ask you to continue with the reporting of these test results. So go right ahead. Take whatever time you need. The results
3: of the test results were fascinating. The EEG Basically, that's measuring people's waves. The doctor who supervised was chief of neurology at a New York City hospital. They put George on a table, they attached the electrodes to his head, and they set what they call the baseline. Now, I am not a scientist, don't pretend to be one, graduated from art school, so my knowledge of science is somewhere between zero and zero. And frankly, it helped me because I had no prejudgments. I had no uh, answers in mind, but I did learn a lot since. Yeah, and so they put George on this machine, and the doctor is all, the neurologist, the only one who knows who the subject is going to be, and they see what the brain waves are. His brain waves appear to move the way anybody who's awake would move when you're you know sitting around. they kind of move uh, at an average speed they're not too slow they're not too fast they're just uh, what they call the level of, of beta. all of a sudden, he brings in a young man now the young man specifically was wearing a white t-shirt with a flag of Italy on it. He had no jewelry. He had a prominent nose, very curly hair. And the average person would have to assume the guy was Italian. I don't know who he was. No name was given. He wasn't even allowed to answer. George was only allowed to give him information. Now, George did not go into a trance as the stereotype medium does, but in this particular test, he would tell him what he saw around him in terms of spirits of the deceased. The young man's standing there, and all of a sudden, as George is on the table and his brainwaves show a normal, alive, awake person, George continues to speak, but the brainwaves change. All of a sudden, they go down to something called alpha, which is a much more relaxed state, and then they go into something called theta, which means you're asleep. He's awake, but the brain waves aren't. Now, it was more bizarre than even that when they noticed that it was happening in only one part of his brain. Huge amounts of electrical activity on the white side, the white temple of his brain. They call it the white temporal lobe, and it looked like the brain waves of an epileptic. He begins to describe the young man and talks about the young man, and he wasn't fooled by the way the guy was dressed. It turns out he was a married doctor who was Jewish, not Italian, and he had a bad relationship with his father. And George gives him detail after detail, and the neurologists there, and the technicians and the other doctors were stunned. And then when George says, I'm sorry, your father is departing, they don't have the uh, ability to, to communicate for more than a, a, you know, a brief period. As George says, the spirit is departing, the brain waves on the EEG go back to normal. When the doctors read that, and they did this with several other people, they were stunned. It could not be a trick, because when you do uh, auto-suggestion or meditation or self-hypnosis, it will happen symmetrically. In other words, your brain waves will change, but they'll do it evenly. It won't happen in just one part of the brain, right temporal lobe only, like an epileptic only when the spirit comes in and when you know after the spirit leaves back to normal when we tested him on the thermography which is a heat sensitive device his body when he was standing there with only a pair of undershorts on in a very very cold room heated up to a point where they have it color-coded with black being the coldest and white being the hottest in this cold room virtually naked, except for the undershorts, he heated up white in certain parts of his body. Which parts? Those parts where a subject who had been brought to him had a particular injury or ailment. For example, one woman had a back injury. His back heats up. Somebody else had a head injury. His head heats up as well. And it went on and on like that. One woman comes in, and she is not allowed to answer, only he can give the information. He says, I feel something in my throat. Well, I can only tell you she's not allowed to respond. And you see on the machine how his throat is heating up, hot white, just the way hers would. But the doctor says to me in a adjoining room looking through this one-way window, no, that's wrong. She has no throat injury. He missed that time. I said, all right, listen, you can't be 100% right. Later on, we talked to the woman who was the subject. make a long story short, while she was waiting to go in to see George, she was very nervous, sucking on some cough drops swallowed one, it got lodged in her throat, and she couldn't get it out. He actually picked that up. That was the thermography. The technician almost passed out. She said, I must have done 100,000 of these things. It used to be used for breast cancer detection, a heated area suggested uh, uh, cancerous cells. She said, I've never seen anything like this. And he actually would heat up where the patient, the subject, heated up. As well, he knew information that was just uncanny. And you see, again, that same part of the brain light up. The white side of the brain was getting warmer. We did him once with a a contraption that gave him mild electrical shocks, and we had a subject that he couldn't see. And every time you would touch the subject of the electrical shock, George was supposed to tell you where he felt that shock was happening, okay, occurring. Well, he was right when they touched the uh, guy's foot with the the electrical thing, he said, uh, his foot. And they did this several times. They go through, you know, different parts of the body. And then on the last try, they don't touch the subject with the electrode that would make the electrical shock, this little prod. And George says, right shoulder. Well, of course the doctor was quick to jump on it and say, Ah this is televised live by the way. Doctor says, Ah, he was wrong. Ha 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 I said, Fine, I you know, again, they know a hundred percent. So he's wrong. Well, this is this is a swear to God, the honest to God truth. George went to the white right shoulder even though the subject wasn't touched there with the electrical probe, because in about thirty days from then, a month later, that fellow who came back who did the subject was decent enough to call us and tell us the truth. He was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and the pain started in his right shoulder. In other words, when George couldn't find a place where the pain was, he simply went into the future. And this has gone on repeatedly with him, test after test after test. One night I brought in a computer analysis uh, fellow, a guy who could do computer analysis and probabilities, and he said the chances of him guessing were on each area, like the gender of the person who passed on or the relationship, something like one in over 40,000 on each one of them. So the odds of him guessing were so astronomical that they defied the laws of probability. Of course, after doing it for 20 years, you start to get tired and uh, he slowed down a great deal. But he was really the very, very, very best and certainly the most tested because the technology that existed in this generation and for him was not there for other mediums in earlier generations. But the results were astounding. What I did not know when we were testing him in New York is that similar tests were being conducted on the West Coast and in Canada by other doctors. And By coincidence, one day, a few years ago, I happened to be with a couple of those people, and they told me the test they were doing. I said, wait a minute, we just did those tests. They said, you did, and we started to compare notes. Do you know that they got the same results with genuine psychics and mediums 3,000 miles away that we got in New York? And George's accuracy rate then, by the way, statistically, was about 94%. In the book, I lied. I lied and I made it 88 percent because I didn't want the pressure on him, of him always having to be white or somebody making fun of him. So if you can imagine, I said he was less accurate at the time than he really was.
2: You've entered another dimension. dimension. You've entered the paradise. paradise.
0: thought, let me tell everybody, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to be talking to Joel Martin. Among his recent books, The Haunting of the Presidents, A Paranormal History of the U.S. Presidency, which he co-authored with our friend William Burns. And let me ask you one question before we talk about this further, because I have one of a thousand questions here, and David has a couple of thousand of his own. The Cable Ace Award, what was that? How did you get it?
3: Well, the Cable Ace Award was an award that now has been absorbed into the Emmys. And what happened with that is that when cable television came into its own on Long Island, which was about 1980, we very quickly, having had this hit radio show about the paranormal, were invited to do a weekly television show about the paranormal, which then was spun off into me doing my own show every night as well. And so the Ace Award, which would have been equivalent to an Emmy, was about a decade ago for the best talk shows in the nation on a regional basis uh, in other words of the best local or regional talk show because of the uh the nature of the subjects Including these subjects and many of the controversies and investigative issues I explored because basically I approached the paranormal the way I approached every other subject I've won awards for, which is to be an investigative reporter. I'm not, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not looking to prove the answer. I'm looking to find out what is going on. And so the Cable Ace Award was the one I won, and there had been about three other nominations for the shows based on this, which I did with George on television and my own show. And we had probably the first shows of the a kind on commercial cable television going way back to, oh gosh, 1980, 81.
0: Let me pursue another area that you raised earlier, and it started the the juices turning about possession, that ghosts can possess human beings. Is this something that you have to prepare yourself for, or do you believe, for example, in the situations that result in exorcisms where so-called nasty ghosts or spirits can possess somebody? Well,
3: the Vatican itself, the Roman Catholic Church, which is really the, uh, I guess you have to say, authoritative source on the religious nature of possession and exorcism, will tell you that genuine exorcisms don't, or, or genuine possession cases, demonic possession cases, don't happen a great deal. That often they're confused with emotional problems, people who are very suggestible, people who are very religious, even superstitious, people who have problems um, with, uh, with a certain degree of... Uh, how can we say mental illness or upset and that is not to insult anybody but being frightened and suggestible is a leading theory about how these things can go into you or you can believe they go into you but and there's always a buck with a paranormal as you know there are cases where people children adults it, is an equal opportunity spirit, can go into you when you don't expect it, when you've done nothing wrong, when you've been exposed to it, when you least expect it. And in those cases, there seem to be genuine demonic cases. I have seen a couple, and they do need exorcism. And exorcism simply amounts to an expert who is very skilled and versed in prayer, knowing how to do the rituals in prayer and holy water that would then... Rid the place of that evil spirit. By the way, in case anyone thinks this is something that goes back to medieval times and uh, has no uh, relevance today, courses are still taught to priests about exorcism, and the church officially has priests who are exorcists. And the Vatican does not disavow it. They just say, don't confuse it with mental illness or emotional troubles or the suggestibility of somebody who becomes very frightened and uh, overdoes uh, his or her religion.
0: This raises a larger question. We're talking in terms of the Roman Catholic Church here. But what about other religions? What about Muslims? What about other Christian religions? Do they have situations that require this sort of treatment?
3: Oh, for Every major religion... I don't suppose there are any minor religions, but every religion, basically, has a belief in spirits. And spirits can be good or spirits can be bad. There is no religion that doesn't have a concept of a spirit phenomena. Now, the Jews, uh, in Judaism, there is not a very well-defined sense of the afterlife as there is in Catholicism, as you probably know. They have a kind of shadow world that we, we... Talk about, you know, after life when one is Jewish, it's called Sheol, S H E, apostrophe O L, but the point is it doesn't really amount to much, not the way Christians have it organized with heaven, hell, and purgatory. The media's readings suggest that there is an afterlife also with levels. You see that with Hindu, you see it with Buddhist. Islam has a belief in, in uh, the afterlife. Every religion does. But as far as ghosts are concerned, you see them in legend or, in fact, also in every religion, including Judaism, something called the Dibbuk is really a ghost or a spirit, and it's an old, old story that goes way, way back. Uh, when the Jews had Kabbalah and mysticism, and even before. So there is no religion, and it's in the Old Testament, too, uh, the story of, of King Saul. There is no religion that doesn't have a concept of the afterlife, of ghosts, of mediums, of spirits that manifest after death. And this is a very important point for people who can't quite understand why we are talking about this as if we are serious. At least 100 million people in this country have reported various paranormal experiences, most of them having to do with premonitions, precognition, seeing a spirit, sensing a ghost, or whether it's evil or positive, all right? Now remember the figure we're talking about in the tens and tens of millions and millions and millions, okay? Yet some debunker will sit there on his, you know, tin can and say, Ah, they're all making it up, all hallucinating, it's all imaginary. Blah 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 blah. Isn't it fascinating though when you make this comparison? If one person sees you guys tonight leaving the studio near a scene of, God forbid, a crime that's been committed and identifies you, you're in trouble. One witness can have you arrested by falsely or mistakenly accusing you of a crime, even a serious crime. We'll accept that in a court of law, a single witness, but we say that 100 million people who have had paranormal experiences are all hallucinating, lying, or are crazy. How do we do that?
1: Well, Joel, there are even skeptics like myself who have had a range of paranormal experiences and have to admit that we simply don't know everything about the nature of reality. That's just,
3: that is the reality of life. Being skeptical is a very good thing, okay? Being a skeptic is fine. I I applaud that, and I respect that. But you have a group in this country who are not skeptics. There's a group of professional debunkers, and there's a vast difference between being an open-minded skeptic and being a debunker. I wasn't even a skeptic when I was doing this for many years. I was what they call a cynic. I was raised in the city on subways. I couldn't have cared less. Didn't know about it, never heard the terminology, knew nothing. I was worse than a skeptic, if you want to put it that way. But a debunker is somebody who has the answer before he asks the question. A skeptic is somebody who says, well, I'm not sure. Let's approach it. Let's see what's real and what isn't. Are there phony stories? such as the Amity Horror that we talked about before, of course. Are there people who are fakers? Sure. I've thrown enough people out of my studio who are fakers and frauds to, to write a book just about those. But what do you do when you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater? What do you do when you have a genuine case of demonic possession or a situation where an object moves or there is some evil manifest or just a ghost goes by in the house or you see an apparition and you know your eyes aren't lying, you've seen it. Why deny it? And the skeptic then would say, holy smokes, I didn't think it was real, but I saw it. I didn't think ghosts were real either. I, I had to see it to believe it. If I hadn't seen that apparition of a nun in a church called the Bonn Basilica in Germany, I don't think to this day I could sit here and tell you as forcefully as I am that, yes, something is there. I wasn't dreaming. It was at noon at a mass I went to with a friend who was Catholic to pray for somebody who was ill. And this apparition comes toward me. First, I thought it was a person, because all I saw was a shadow dressed in the old, you know, nuns' habits that they they hardly wear anymore. But this was Europe, so I thought they still wore them. And as she comes closer to me, all I see is a shadow. I mean, it's just like little dots, just an apparition. She stands near me, walks behind me, and puts a shawl over me. Now, the shawl was, you know, also apparitional in nature. I'm not Catholic. I didn't know anything about the symbolism. It took me three days to work up the courage to ask my friend who was with me, who was Catholic, what this meant, and she understood and told me. It's called the shawl of protection. I said I never even heard the term. And she said it means that somebody wants you protected. The- presumably God, but there was an apparition of a nun in a church that walked over to me. Now, if some debunker wants to call me a liar, fine. If you're a skeptic, okay, what am I going to do? I know what I saw, and I know what I experienced. You just said, and you said it perfectly. We don't know everything there is to know about reality. How dare us presume that we do, whether it's a UFO, an evil spirit, or the, the ghost of President Lincoln. It doesn't matter who it is. How do we dare say we know everything there is to know about us, about the universe, about nature, etc.
2: You've entered another dimension. another dimension. You've entered, you've unparaged. <laughs>
0: We're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Joel Martin. We have time for just one more segment. David, you have some wrap-up questions?
1: Yeah, I actually have one key question, Joel. In all of the readings that you underwent with, with George Anderson, could you summarize for us? Let's assume for a minute, and I think there's a good possibility that George is the real thing. What were the messages that came through from the afterlife? What things were the common thread? What wisdom is there to glean from the afterlife?
3: Now that's a very good question and it's a very, it's a very fair question and skeptics often ask it and I think it's, I think it's a a terrific point to, to be made. David, here's, here's the answer. They were rather, in most cases, rather mundane. And those people who think that somehow when you go on after death and there is some other life somewhere up in the stratosphere, although a genuine medium will tell you that the other dimension, be it It's around us. They see us. We just can't see them, except when they manifest for a moment or two very briefly. They uh, will give you a message that basically is like a phone call to a relative or a friend. Hi, I'm fine. Um, They might give you a clue about something that's coming up in the future. They might tell you where you've lost an object. They might tell you be careful, as one did with me, about driving your car going somewhere because there's something wrong with the steering wheel, which I did not know about. (laughs) And uh, I did get it fixed, and I I had no idea, and sure enough, there was something wrong. But basically what they are is what they were here they don't necessarily get smarter. If you, uh, drove an ice cream truck here, you will probably not become a nuclear physicist or rocket scientist on the other side. And I'm not criticizing either one. We, you know, I, when, when I, go to the other side i'm not going to be that much smarter than i am now which is you know i'm not saying a whole bunch but i still probably won't be able to do algebra okay you don't you don't gain this incredible wisdom just because you're in the afterlife as the stereotypes of you know suggested you are simply getting back a message from somebody who is saying to you i've passed on i loved you i'm okay i'm not in pain Are you okay? Now, how do you know since it's such a generalized message that it's the person that you're speaking to who you've lost? That's where you know genuine mediumship. When George gave me the name of my grandfather, uncle, aunt, sister, brother-in-law, late wife, etc., etc., then you say, holy smokes, when he described them, that was even weirder. He gave me one night the name of my grandmother, and I didn't know that was her name. So much again for mental telepathy. wasn't really my mind. I did not know her name was Rebecca. I really didn't. We called her by another name. And, and he says, she's saying it's Rebecca. Well, so the, the answer is she was just saying, take
1: care, be a good boy. But there's got to be some something more substantial. I mean, what, what do we... Well, I have to believe if this conduit opens up... Maybe some bit of vital information besides, I'm okay, are you okay, can come through.
3: Well, it depends on who the individual is. There might be, there have been, as a matter of fact, cases where I saw George sit there and predict the AIDS epidemic, where he predicted... The uh, near assassination of Pope John Paul back in 1981, when he predicted things about uh, the AIDS epidemic, as I said, and even what might help resolve it or how it should be handled, Uh, an earthquake one night, a car, uh, not a car, an airplane crash another, Um, I mean, but the profundity that tremendous wisdom of the ages that we expect from somebody here. You know, Grandpa was a shoemaker, and Grandpa is not all of a sudden going to have the wisdom of the ages. He'll have a certain amount of common sense, and he'll tell you things like, you know, don't marry that girl, you know. Drive carefully. You've you've been driving drunk, haven't you? In other words, they're down-to-earth things in most cases. They're not the wisdom of the ages. Some of that is stereotype, and some of what you're talking about is an ability adjacent to mediumship called channeling, where you get allegedly an entity who has that wisdom who comes through, a medium or a channeler, and says, ah, the universe is permeated with the smell of turpentine, and I see from the top of my mountain that yogurt is the answer to all of life's problems. You know, you can believe it or not, because it's allegedly coming from somebody who is supposedly never had been in earth, or if had been was somebody who's gained tremendous wisdom on the other side now that's up to you to accept or or not if if the information is useful but in personal situations they're usually personal messages
0: well you don't believe then that people reincarnate that they come back here and maybe try to learn another set of life experiences i sure do oh you do okay
3: oh god do i ever and do i ever believe in that And I believe in that because there's such an amount of evidence, such a stunning amount of evidence about people's behavior in this life that suggests somewhere, somehow, they had to have learned that information someplace other than this life. In other words, think about affinities. I mean, think about why a friend of mine who was born in a slum tenement and raised in one like me had all of his life growing up in Brooklyn this strange affinity for the mountains of the western United States and snakes. I mean, literally, it mean, 's not a joke. Who loves the West? I have no idea why. I've never been there. He eventually moved out west to fulfill this, this strange sensation he had all his life. I have a strange affinity that always makes me feel when I read something about the era that I lived as a child during the Civil War. The debunkers will lie and they will tell you things like, well, everybody comes back and thinks he's Napoleon. I have seen hundreds and hundreds of these cases and never once has anybody gone to a past life and suggested they were anything but a child maybe a peasant, a working person, something quite ordinary and average. No royalty, nobody famous, nothing nonsensical like that. No Napoleons, no Queen Marie Antoinette or Elizabeth. But when you see people who have these taste or affinities or longings or or feelings that they have to do something with their life or seem to know things that they couldn't possibly or shouldn't know in this life, where the heck is it coming from? Why are these things happening? And when they're placed sometimes in aggressive hypnosis and provide information that can't be matched anywhere except uh, through reality in terms of a past life, in other words, you find out that they really are telling you about something that happened 100 or 200 years ago. While the cases are rare, yes, they do. Hindus and Buddhists wouldn't even have this conversation. They say, well, of course it's reincarnation. We're still arguing about it. By the way, the Roman Catholic Church you mentioned before, the world's first psychic investigators, incidentally, genuinely, they, for the first several hundred years of the Church, did believe in reincarnation, had no problem with reincarnation. There are references to it in the New Testament, and... Uh, then they decided it was better to not have it, so they voted it out. Simple as that.
0: Well, that makes it easy. You just say it doesn't exist and it doesn't.
3: That's right. You take a vote. How many of you were for it? Uh, let me see. All right. Just remember, anybody for it loses his head or burned at the stake? Let me see. Look at that. It's unanimous opinion. <laughs> nobody nobody <laughs> believes in it. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> it, it wasn't complicated back then. <laughs> but, yes, certainly, I do think something does survive that has the potential to come back. Absolutely.
0: Well, I think that's a good way to end this. Thank you very much, Joel Martin, Paranormal Investigator. Tell us one more time, what books of yours should we look for?
3: We Don't Die, Love Beyond Life, Haunting of the Presidents, and uh, with Bill, there will be future books as well, one that will be called Haunting of America or The Haunting of America, which is uh, about the paranormal history of the United States. And uh, Bill is a phenomenally knowledgeable man and publishes UFO magazine, as you know. And um, we have worked together happily now on The Haunting of the Presidents and uh, several future projects, including the one that we hope next year will be called The Haunting of America, which will tell the whole story of this subject from the burning of the witches at Salem to this very, very moment.
0: Thank you very much for joining us on the PowerCast, Joel Martin. A special thanks to you. I hope we can have you on again in the near future. And a special thanks also to Bill Burns for sending you to us.
3: Anytime you want.
0: Thanks, Thanks, Joel. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
4: On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, you never know what's going to happen next. So
0: I want to ask you a question, David, because you said something during the show I wanted to talk to you about a few moments here. You say that you're a skeptic, but you've seen a ghost. Now, I see a little disconnect here. So would you explain to me what's going on here? Well, there's no disconnect.
1: I mean, I know what my experience was, and it turns out that that particular experience was with someone else. So it wasn't just something out of my imagination. There was someone else that was with me. But like anything else, Gene, I have to assume that some double-digit percentage of these episodes are are BS. They're just made up. So I do remain skeptical about the vast majority, but my own experiences suggest there is something going on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a skeptic in that I don't necessarily buy into all of this. What I do want to say, though, I'm a little disappointed that there aren't some big answers that have come from the George Anderson readings. I I was hoping there'd be something more substantial than just mundane statements about, I'm okay, are you okay? We have to have Joel back, because I want to ask him more about that topic. There have to be some... Just some basic issues that are resolved in these communications.
0: It seems to me that ghosts seem to have a very mundane way of communicating with us. Oh, I'm okay. It's it's cool over here in the afterlife, and we're not getting any other information because there has got to be a lot more. If they're hanging out in some other realm, another dimension, whatever it is, whatever it is this this yeah. afterlife, why is it that they can't give us some substantive information about what's going on? Why is it kept to such an elementary level? I'm
2: curious. Right. The Paracast, with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, is a production of Making the Impossible, Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.